This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss Medicare for All. With me to discuss the topic is University of Massachusetts Amherst economics professor, Gerald Friedman. Professor Friedman, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, Professor Friedman's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, not surprising in part because of substantial ACA disruption caused by the current administration, the healthcare reform debate has circled back to Medicare for all. For over the past 100 years, universal health care, at one time termed sickness insurance, has been the progressive's dream. Currently in the House, the expanded and improved Medicare for All Act, a bill first introduced by Michigan Democrat John Conyers in 03, has over 120 co-sponsors. There is now also a House Medicare for All caucus started by the Michigan member Debbie Dingell, wife of the former member John Dingell, with approximately 70 Democratic members. If the D's take back the House, the House Budget Committee ranking member, John Yarmuth, has stated he would hold or will hold hearings on Medicare for all. In the Senate, Senator Bernie Sanders has introduced a parallel bill, the Medicare for All Act of 2017, with 16 co-sponsors that includes several potential Democratic presidential candidates. Interestingly, a few years ago, Sanders' bill had no co-sponsors. While Donald Trump spoke favorably of Canada's single-payer health care program during the 16 campaign, he has clearly changed his view. With me again to discuss Medicare for All, sometimes termed M4A, is again University of Massachusetts Amherst Professor Gerald Friedman. So, Professor Friedman, let's start with a definition. How is Medicare for All generally defined, or what are its elements? Well, Medicare for All is simply the federal government assuming the position of health insurer for the entire population. So everybody would be insured um, for their medical bills. The details of whether they'll be co-pays, deductibles, could vary. Um, but everybody would get their health insurance through the federal government, financed through taxation. This would not involve the federal government taking control of the health care system. That would remain in private hands. Hospitals, physician practice would remain private, but the people's bills would be covered through the insurance provided by the federal government. Thank you. So just as the name suggests, we would just expand Medicare. That currently covers uh, seniors 65 and older uh, to everyone, including children, correct? That's right. That's right. And the coverage, it's usually talked about in terms of improved Medicare for all. Um, the coverage would be expanded. Medicare currently has important limits, uh, limits on the number of hospital days covered. Uh, Medicare's uh, prescription drug program is quite limited. Uh, so those holes in the Medicare program would be filled. Um, whether Medicare for all would include long-term care and some other aspects um, is 
you know, it varies according to who you're talking to or what is being proposed. Um, but Medicare for All generally is talked about in terms of improved Medicare for All, filling at least some of the gaps left by the current Medicare system. So all medically necessary care, including primary, prescription, emergency, long-term, and some for mental health, dental, and vision, and these latter two are not typically covered, including hearing, under the Medicare program. So it would be Medicare at base, potentially with additional or improved services. Let me ask, obviously, the, uh, the, the immediate follow-up question in this conversation, that is, realizing the details can vary, but generally, how would this be financed? Uh, well, it would be financed, as I said, uh, through taxation, general taxation. Exactly which taxes would be raised, again, depends on who you're talking to or what bill, uh, or whose proposal you, you, uh, you're speaking of. Uh, the House and Senate bills that you mentioned are both notable because they do not have funding proposals within them. Um, I drafted a proposal several years ago for the House bill, H.R. 676, um, which was quite progressive in that uh, taxes would be raised um, on rich people much more than on working people. But it did involve a payroll tax component. Um, there have been various uh, proposals for the Senate bill. Um, I drafted a proposal for Senator Sa- Sanders when he was running for president on how he could finance a Medicare for All program similar to what is in the Senate bill. That relied heavily on a payroll tax, um, uh, but also involved some uh, progressive elements of high-income uh, surtaxes on income. Uh, but again, you could do it in different ways. You could have a premium, um, as the current Medicare system does. Medicare Part B uh, has a premium of about $1,700 a year. Um, you could have uh, financial transactions tax, which would be good for the economy in general because it would improve the functioning of Wall Street um, and could raise a very, very large amount of money, even at very low rates. Um, you could rely on payroll taxes, um, which would be in some ways similar to what we have now where health care is financed through um, uh, payments from labor income and employees make payments and premiums. Whatever you do by relying on taxation rather than fixed fees, fixed premiums, whatever you do, you will have a distribution of the burden of health care that is more equitable and more closely tied to people's ability to pay than what we have now. Um, you know, what we have now is the most regressive way that you could pay for health care. That is um, a fixed amount charged on everybody, uh, but more cost for people who get sicker because their premiums go up as they age um, and because they pay more on co-pays and deductibles. So whatever you do is going to be better than what we have now, and, you know, more equitable than what we have now. Right, more progressive. Thank you. So this would, in many instances, this would sunset, correct me if I'm wrong, the employer tax exclusion, and that raises about 300 plus billion a year. Yeah, yeah, that's part of 
um, any Medicare for All program, um, you're doing away with some of the subsidies that we go, that now go to the private health insurance system. Uh, the most important, of course, being the uh, exclusion of premiums, employer-paid uh, premiums from taxation, taxable income. Um, the other big uh, benefit in terms of financing plan is that the Medicare for All system would be cheaper than what we have now. Um, and this is an issue that I think is settled in the discussion. Uh, the very conservative Koch Brothers financed Mercatus Center in uh, George Mason University came out with a study last week. Mm-hmm. The Rand Institute did a study of the New York proposed single-payer plan for New York State, and both of these found that uh, a Medicare, a single-payer Medicare for all system would be cheaper uh, than what we have now, even after taking account that it would cover everybody. Um, McCaddis estimated $2 trillion in savings over 10 years. Um, and they were very conservative in their assumptions, uh, by the way. Um, you know, I quickly redid their analysis and came up with my estimate of savings uh, would be uh, closer to t- uh, $10 trillion over 10 years. Uh, but um, everybody, you know, I think, you know, from the Koch brothers on left, everybody now recognizes that a Medicare for All system could save money because it would reduce administrative waste uh, within employers um, and uh, insurers. It would reduce administrative waste among providers who have to spend enormous sums of money on billing and insurance-related activities um, because they have to submit bills to multitude of of different insurance companies. Um, and also, a Medicare for All system would be in a position to deal with the growing problem of monopoly pricing within the healthcare system because we have a few companies in pharmaceuticals. You know, people talk a lot about what's going on in pharmaceuticals where Americans pay prices for drugs that are approximately twice, or between 60% and twice as high as people pay in Canada or European countries where governments negotiate on the price of drugs. Um, we pay prices that are almost twice what the Veterans Administration pays when they buy drugs. Um, so that's a problem that people talk about. What they don't talk about as much but is becoming an increasing problem is the overpricing of procedures in certain elite uh, providers who have formed powerful networks, such as Partners Hospital System in Massachusetts, which was formed by first an alliance among the Harvard Teaching Hospitals, and then they brought up hospitals throughout the state. Um, they have 20% share market share for the state as a whole, much more in the Boston area, and they are able to push up prices beyond the actual cost of providing services. A Medicare for All system would allow for negotiating these prices um, and driving them to back down um, uh, to the benefit of the great majority of the population. I mean, to be sure, some people would lose by talking about um, you know, we may want to talk about the politics of this, um, but in brief, every dollar of savings that somebody like I find 
you know, if I say there's $600 billion of savings, a lot of that is somebody's income. Right. Um, usually the income of people who are earning a great deal have a, and have a great deal of political leverage. Um, you know, give you just a sense, uh, there are approximately 3,000 people in the healthcare system, uh, non-profit healthcare um, companies in the United States, earning over a million dollars a year. Um, by contrast, the head of the Federal Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the person responsible for health care for about half the population already, mm-hmm. and presumably the person who would be in, responsible for this Medicare for All system, that person is paid a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> so there are thousands and thousands of people in nonprofit health care companies, not even talking about the for-profit ones. I'm not even talking about the the health insurance companies, 10 health insurance, for-profit health insurance companies in the United States. Uh, their CEOs average over $20 million in salary, in, in compensation. The CFOs, chief financial officers, average over $5 million. There are literally thousands and thousands of people earning more than they would be making if they worked as part of the Medicare for All system. Um, and then you get the shareholders of these companies, um, like the Frist family, um, or, you know, former senator from right. Tennessee. Right, Bill Frist. Right, right. Um, who that family owns what used to be HCA, Hospital Corporation of America. Now they have a different name. Um, you know, but hundreds of millions of dollars um, in shareholder equity for them. Um, and then you get Rick Scott down in Florida, who paid governor. one of the right. yeah the governor of Florida running for senator. Um, he paid one of the largest fines, fines in Medicare history. I think it was like five hundred million dollars. I may be wrong, but it was a huge fine for fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but despite that, he is fabulously rich off of our health care. That would not happen with the Medicare for All system. And that is part of the savings we get. Um, and that's great. We want the savings. We, we deserve them. But we have to expect that we will be facing you know, somebody like that um, on the other side, fighting. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to the politics in, in a minute. So relative to the savings, just to state, we spend about $3.3 trillion annually. On your point about uh, savings and administrative efficiency, just to note, uh, there was a recent, uh, this earlier this year, study that showed most industries, because of um, administrative uh, inefficiency in healthcare, most industries are able to bill for a billion dollars in services using 100 full time equivalent employees. Because of administration inefficiency in healthcare, those 100 FTEs are approximately 770 in healthcare. So that's by way of saying, again, it's a grossly inefficient uh, system on pricing. I guess the general point is that under Medicare for all, we'd pay Medicare prices. So you wouldn't see, for example, uh, providers with monopsony power uh, being able to charge, say, three, four times what uh, Medicare uh, is able to pay. Let me ask you uh, next about um, what's your understanding of public opinion at the moment? Because that's interesting. There have been... Uh, changes in public opinion relative to this uh, reform. 
Yes, yes, and that's been very encouraging. Um, the public, it depends a lot on how you ask the questions, but at this point, something on the order of 60% of the public uh, uh, favors some public responsibility for health care, uh, making sure that all Americans have health care. Um, uh, and maybe 40% would support something like Medicare for all. Um, uh, if you ask them, do you want to pay taxes instead of premiums um, or something, you know, once you use the word taxes, people are like, oh, I'm not so sure. It goes, goes down. Um, but there is growing support for Medicare for All among the population. Within the Democratic Party, that support is pretty overwhelming, and we can expect that uh, the next Democratic platform will go back to uh, what Democrats favored in the 50s when their platforms favored um, national health insurance. Um, uh, and that was dropped, I believe, in 76, 1976, um, when Jimmy Carter was nominated. Mm -hmm. The, uh, um, you know, again, at this point, the concept of Medicare for All, as I indicated, it's, it's, it's a little amorphous. It's not clear exactly what will be coming out if the Democrats capture Congress and the White House in 2018, 2020, we should expect that in 2021 there will be more than hearings. There will be a major push to enact some form of Medicare for all. Um, there's the, the centrist Democratic uh, think tank, the Center for American Progress, mm -hmm. came out with a program they call Medicare Extra. Right. Uh, which, you know, I mean... I'm an incrementalist and a reformer, um, and I also believe that anything we do in this this direction will be saving lives. So I'm, you know, I'm I welcome everyone who's coming to the table, um, you know, in terms of having a larger public involvement in healthcare. Um, Medicare Extra it would put um, a public option that people could buy into Medicare. It would make it attractive to employers to try to get employers to drop their private health insurance coverage and join into Medicare. Um, and it would improve Medicare. It would fill some of the gaps, such as the limits on hospitalization, et cetera. Um, so it, it would be a major step forward and would probably increase coverage substantially. Um, and... Uh, at some point, you hope, and this was Jacob Hacker's hope when he first proposed the public option over 10 years ago, that um, if you get enough people to enroll in Medicare, uh, you get into a virtuous cycle where Medicare gets bigger and bigger, more and more efficient, um, and able to uh, have lower prices so that more people will be attracted to choose the public Medicare rather than some private health insurance. Um, there are problems with that because Medicare will, to some extent, start out at a huge competitive disadvantage um, compared to private health insurance because Medicare includes the disabled mm -hmm. and it includes the elderly. These are expensive people to cover. So it's difficult for a public option based on Medicare to compete with private health insurance. Um, you could spin off a, uh, you know, a Medicare-like program for people under 65 who are not disabled, 
And that could be an effective public option compared to, um, you know, private health insurance. But then you're starting out with zero enrollees. So you don't, you know, so maybe you could link it with Medicare. I mean, I think that there's going, there needs to be a lot of creative thinking along those lines. The simplest thing to do is just do H.R. 676 or the Sanders bill, which close enough. I mean, they're, very, they're similar, um, certainly after a few years. Um, Sanders bill has a transition period built into it. Um, you know, and just open up Medicare to everybody, put everybody in it, um, and, uh, you know, cover everybody, add prescription drugs, um, add um, dental and vision, um, and then start looking into what we can do with long-term care. Personally, I think long-term care should be included as well from the beginning. I think it would cost a lot less than people think, and I think it's very important for um, a lot of Americans that their mothers and fathers are able to get long-term care. If you have a long-term care program that provides care for people in the homes, I think it may actually save a lot of money. Um, But, you know, the... uh, uh, we will have to have this discussion um, starting the day the Democrats capture Congress to get into what is involved. And will there be copays and deductibles? I feel very strongly that we should not have copays and deductibles. Other people I work with feel very strongly that these are essential um, because um, they have picked up the fear that some people out there have, that, oh, if it's free, then people will abuse the system. Right, moral hazard, right, yeah. Skin in the game, right. That's right. I I really don't believe that. Um, I think what's much more common is, um, and this this has definitely been shown, when people have co-pays, when there's a cost, even a very low cost to accessing the healthcare system, they cut back on using the health care, but they cut back on everything. They're just as likely to cut back on the diabetes medication as they are for a visit to the doctor because they have a scratchy throat that doesn't really isn't really a problem. Right. Indiscriminate, yes, yes. That's indiscriminate. And and even that scratchy throat, you know, okay, usually it's fine. Usually it's not gonna be anything, but you never never really, know. Sometimes you know that you know, that thing that you think is nothing turns out to be early cancer or some other major problem that because you detected it early, you can take care of it quickly. Mm-hmm. And easily. Yeah. So so I feel strongly about that, but other people, you know, and this is the type of discussion that I think there is enough of a consensus among Democrats and enough of a consensus among policy people that Medicare for All is affordable, we can do it, um, and for the Democrats, they need to do it. You know, we've played around enough trying to make nice to the health insurance industry, um, you know, with the Affordable Care Act. Real, it, you know, real progress was made. It's great that 20 million people have health insurance who didn't. Mm-hmm. 20,000 or more lives a year. There's some that have been saved. There are um, millions of people throughout this country with existing conditions who are benefiting from the from the uh, Affordable Care Act. I don't mean to dismiss it at all, but we need to move beyond it, and the yes. time is now to do that. So um, we so, have to be thinking about what we are going to try to do. 
Okay, thank you. So on the public opinion, a recent Kaiser Washington Post poll overall, 59% uh, supported. I would make quick note of professional opinion. Seems to be a generation, generational issue. Younger doctors are far more supportive, more interested in public health and social determinants. I have two uh, final questions. Let's do go to the politics and the criticism. I'm sure you're well aware, speaking of the CMS administrator and, and her income, Seema Verma recently was quoted in a speech she gave in San Francisco about this. And it was the usual rhetoric, you know, government-controlled health care, government-run socialized health care, you know, the classic Medicare um, criticism. But from your perspective, what are the most, if any, valid criticisms uh, for this program or this idea uh, that you've come across? Oh, the most valid criticism. Uh, well, first, um, you know, I, of course, I don't buy these criticisms, but the things that at least, you know, need to be looked into more mm-hmm. are um, a national health insurance system would restrict people's choices um, because um, now if you don't like a decision made by your insurance company, uh, you know, it's conceivable you could go outside of it. You could change your insurance. Mm-hmm. Um and that would not be as easy with the national system. Um, to be sure, you know, um, I would trust, you know, public bureaucrats more than um, the people who are making money off of restricting my health care, you know, if it comes down to it. But if I have a dispute, if I think that I should be getting the service and I'm not, and that there's only one insurance company, then you know, that could be a problem. That's something we need to think about. Second, um, there's, this is one of the issues that's raised most frequently. Um, there's the issue of rationing. Right. Um, we're going to be bringing more people into the system. Um, then how will they be cared for, given that we have the same number of doctors? Um, and um, bring more people into the system and also re- uh, reducing or eliminating barriers to access. Now, I think these barriers to access, the underutilization, that comes from copays and deductibles could be responsible for over 200,000 deaths in the United States per year. Several times the number who die because they actually don't have any health insurance. The number of people who are losing, you know, who have problems because they can't access the system is, is even greater. Um, but uh, if we're going to be bringing all these people into the system, we're giving them better access you know, where they're going to go. Now, I look at it and I say, okay, yeah, but the doctors aren't going to be wasting so much of that time. You know, maybe 10% of physician time is now wasted mm-hmm. on for the insurance system. You know, that's going to free up enough time to care for all the people who are now shut out or now have limited access. Uh, but it is a real concern that people raise. Um, and uh, uh, third... There's concern about the jobs that will be lost. Right. Um, Disruption. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, there's a legitimate concern about the financial disruption. If we're going to wipe out $500, million, uh, $500 billion in market value just for the 10 largest health insurance companies, trillions of dollars in value maybe in the pharmaceutical industry, um, then that's going to have an effect on people's 401ks, on the stability of the insurance, uh, of the banking system. Um, 
and finally, there's a concern about the effect on innovation. Um, you know, drug companies will have less incentive to innovate because they won't be making as much profit. Um, hospitals and others will have less incentive to innovate because they're not making profit. I think that really is misguided because, first of all, so much of the real innovation is financed already by the public sector. Mm-hmm. It's the Health and National Science Foundation are responsible for most of the major um, innovations in drug, in pharmaceuticals, um, and medical devices. I mean, these things are not coming out of private labs. They're coming out of university labs and, and public labs. Um, and second, a lot of the innovation is it's not profit-driven. Um, you know, the extreme example, of course, is Jonas Salk, right. uh, the Hill vaccine, who gave it away. Right. He gave it to the public. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, there are other incentives um, at work than uh, the desire to make profit. So um, those are the, uh, you know, the objections that, you know, have some, well, I guess finally, and this would come out of conservative economics, so conservative economists say, well, if you raise taxes, that will reduce the incentive to work hard. Um, and people won't take jobs because they don't need the job to get health insurance. I think that's really misguided. I think the work effort um, is we lose more labor because of poor health than we lose that we would lose if we raised taxes. Um, millions of Americans are unnecessarily sick because they did not get health care. Um, and we lose millions of days of work because of that. Americans are less healthy than people in European countries. We die sooner, right. and we're sick more often because of a, you know, a health care system. We smoke less. Our driving isn't bad. Um, you know, in lots of ways, okay, we are overweight. You know, but, you know, in most other ways, our lifestyles are as healthy or healthier. Like I say, we smoke less, and that's the biggest thing you can do for you in terms of your health. Mm-hmm. So um, why are we so sick? I think part of it is because we have a bad health care system. We don't go to the, we go to the doctor four times a year. The Japanese, who have the longest life expectancy among affluent countries, go 12 times a year. Maybe we don't need to go 12, but the average for the rest of the OECD, Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, is over six times a year. I think that difference contributes to millions of lost work days because of unnecessary sickness. Um, so um, yeah, I think there's some validity. All of these points, all these seven issues, I think need to be addressed. Some of them have more validity than others. Okay, thank you. Let me let me just ask one closeout or final question. And I know and I ask in part because I know you have a good deal of experience working at the state level. And that is, uh, there are numerous state efforts. You're very well aware. Um, Colorado, Vermont, California, for example, has several uh, gubernatorial Democratic candidates. For example, Cynthia Nixon in New York and others are running on some version of of universal health care. But let me phrase my question in this way. Amongst the states that are discussing this, um, uh, New York, Michigan, others, um, Rhode Island, Florida, Connecticut, et cetera, which state do you think possibly could 
managed to pull this off? Uh, I think New York right now has the best chance. Um, the uh, uh, it's pe- the New York Health Act has passed the lower house of the legislature mm-hmm. with one of the uh, state's majority leader, Richard Gottfried. Um, they got a stamp of approval from the Rand Institute, a study that was financed by the New York Hospital. Uh, Health Association, which, uh, or Health, uh, New York Health, you know, I forget the exact New York name. Health and Hospitals, correct, yes, yeah. That's right, that's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, a group that was not supporting it, and RAND is not known for their support for liberal um, programs, you know, RAND Research and Development, that's the name, it comes from the Air Force. Uh, but, um, uh, there's a very good chance the Democrats will finally get a working majority in the state Senate in the next election. Um, and, you know, the governor's been wishy-washy about it. Um, you know, assuming he defeats Cynthia Nixon in the primary, um, you know, Governor Cuomo would, would be under, if it passes the Senate, he would be under a lot of pressure to um, uh, to sign it. Uh, so I think that New York has a very good chance. Um, there are other states where it may happen by referendum. There was that that didn't get enough signatures in Washington, but they did get over a hundred thousand signatures. Um, they needed three hundred thousand, so there were ways to go, but they just got started this year. Um, uh, as you mentioned, the gubernatorial candidate in Rhode Island is supporting it. A gubernatorial candidate who has the Democratic nomination in Maryland, Angelis, uh, supports it. Mm-hmm. There's a, I did a report for Maryland. Ten, eight years ago or something. Um, uh, they're good groups, good group of people down there. Maryland has already has a good. Uh, it's the only state that kept hospital price regulation, right? Um, and there's a good apparatus, state apparatus down there already. Um, so, which would make a transition to a single payer plan easier. Um, and uh, Ohio. Has I mean there are like twenty over twenty states that have active movements for single payer, um, and I think that there's a reasonable chance that some of them will take through before the feds act, which would be the Canadian model where Saskatchewan led the way. Um, you know, New York leading the way would be sort of like um, Quebec or Ontario leading the way. <laughs> yeah, you know, but of course California is the other one. Right. You know, there's a very strong movement. The nurses are very politically active. It's a very, very blue state. And the um, next governor is supportive, yes. yes. That's right, that's right. So, you know, California would, you know, would be another real possibility. Okay, well, thank you, uh, uh, Professor Frieden. We're at our time limit. So I genuinely appreciate this discussion overview. Again, of Medicare oh. for four. Let's, let's see where we go uh, after this election. And in fact, if we can, I'll, I'd like to revisit this with you maybe after the new year. I look forward to it. All right. Thank you again, Professor Friedman. You're welcome, and thank you for having me. Bye-bye. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.